Our scripture reading today comes from the Gospel of Luke, chapter 19, verses 29 to 40. It will sound very familiar because you already heard the kids read the Matthew version of the same story. When Jesus had come near Bethphage and Bethany at the place called the Mount of Olives, he sent two of the disciples saying, go into the village ahead of you, and as you enter it, you will find tied there a colt that has never been ridden. Untie it and bring it here. And if anyone asks you, why are you untying it? Just say this, the Lord needs it. So those who were sent departed and found it as he had told them. As they were untying the colt, its owners asked them, why are you untying the colt? They said, the Lord needs it. Then they brought it to Jesus, and after throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. As he rode along, people kept spreading their cloaks on the road, and as he, now, uh, as he was now approaching the path down from the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to praise God joyfully with a loud voice for all the deeds of power that they had seen, saying, blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest heaven. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, teacher, order your disciples to stop. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would shout out. The word of the Lord, and you say, thanks be to God. Try that again. The word of the Lord, thanks be to God. As you are probably aware, because you've heard it multiple times today already, today is the first day of what Christians have historically called Holy Week. Holy Week is something that Christians around the world and throughout the past two millennia have engaged as, you might say, a collective pilgrimage that takes place in time rather than in physical location. Now, most pilgrimages involve going somewhere, physically traveling somewhere. Uh, but in this case, we are invited to experience a journey of time. We experience, you could think of time sort of bending in on itself. All time is present to God. And so in Christ, we are present again to the events of his final week. Now, if you have never leaned into Holy Week before, uh, I am so excited that you have a very uh, a full slate of programs planned for this week. It is an incredible formational opportunity to be conformed to Christ, to enter into and experience the highs and the lows of Jesus' final week. So I encourage you to do that. Now, Holy Week begins with what is called Palm Sunday, what we're celebrating today. Uh, it's in honor of the events that we just heard read about. Traditionally, Palm Sunday has involved uh, a procession. So the entire church will do what you might think of as like a miniature parade. They'll go outside into the neighborhood. They'll walk around. Usually they're, they're holding, uh, the priest or pastor's holding a processional cross, which symbolizes the presence of Christ, and they wander around the whole neighborhood, and uh, it's kind of a reenactment of Jesus's triumphal entry into Jerusalem. People wave palm branches, they sing songs, children are dancing in the street. It's quite a scene. It's intentionally evoking the events of Jesus's original arrival, one of the most celebratory Sundays in the whole year. But what's strange about this day, at least from our vantage point, is that the events of Palm Sunday turned out, uh, in the historical story, to be an enormous disappointment for the disciples. I mean, it's a, a bit ironic, actually, to celebrate Palm Sunday, because, as we'll see, the day is essentially a failed coronation. It's a bit like planning a massive graduation party for yourself and then getting expelled two days before you graduate. 
that's what we're celebrating was the, you know, the party that didn't really happen. There's an enormous amount of whiplash built into this day, emotional whiplash. Uh, it's a day in which these sky-high expectations crashed into bitter disappointment. And it's precisely this dynamic of a dream turned to disappointment that I want us to explore today because I'm confident that there is a spiritual truth, there is a gospel reality that we need to reckon with, that we need to come face-to-face with and understand and embrace. So we're going to take a closer look at Jesus' story, of, of the story of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem, and then I wanted to pivot and talk about our own experiences of disappointment and disillusionment and how God wants to meet us in these circumstances. So would you pray with me as we enter into this? May the words of my mouth and the meditation of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Holy Spirit, this is your time and we are your people and this is your place. Meet us in your power. This is our prayer in Christ's name. Amen. When we read the gospel accounts of Jesus' entrance into Jerusalem 2,000 years ago on this day, it's exceedingly clear that Jesus was welcomed into Jerusalem not merely as an honorary citizen, not merely as a gifted rabbi or a gifted teacher or a healer. The gospel accounts all agree. The crowds understood Jesus as being welcomed as a conquering king. And there are some reasons why they conceived of things in these terms. Probably the main reason is that the drama that was unfolding that day was a precise enactment of the Old Testament book of Zechariah chapter 9, which is a passage where the prophet describes a triumphant and victorious king riding into Jerusalem on a donkey. Uh, in the gospel accounts, the donkey is secured according to Jesus' command, by a couple of his disciples. And it's probably fair to assume that the disciples understood something of the significance of what they were doing. As the procession got going, the disciples threw their outer garments on the donkey, and the crowds began to line the road, throwing their garments on the road, uh, creating the ancient equivalent of what you might think of as a red carpet. The path they took was not just any old road, it was uh, the road that led from the Mount of Olives down into a valley and then up to the Temple Mount. And if you've ever seen pictures of uh, Jerusalem, most of the time they're taken from the Temple, uh, from the, the Mount of Olives, looking across the Kidron Valley, and that's where they went. Um, this would be the most natural path. The crowds, uh, it's exactly the path that Zechariah predicted that the triumphant king would ride into on. So the crowds lined the road that day on the way to Jerusalem in the same way that crowds in our day line up on Pennsylvania Avenue to welcome the new president after his inauguration on his way from the Capitol to the White House. They sang songs, they danced in the street, they cheered, and then the Gospels of Matthew and Mark tell us what in particular they were shouting. It was this word, Hosanna, Hosanna, which means save us now. What they were hoping for and what they were expecting was very clear. And as far as the disciples were concerned, things could not have been going better. This was their dream, right? It was precisely why they had signed up with Jesus in the first place. After three years of building and momentum, it appeared that finally Jesus was going to capitalize on his popular appeal. He was going to take up the reins of power. 
And they had pictured this scene in their minds uh, probably dozens and dozens of times playing out. Now Jesus, in their minds, this is what happened. Jesus would gather the nation together. He would lead a revolt to expel the Roman occupiers. He would rid the nation of oppressive taxes. He would cancel debts. He would free debt prisoners from prison. He would lift up the common man. He would throw out all who had colluded with the tyranny of Rome. He would, uh, he would awaken a spiritual revival. He would perform mass healings. And then he would provide an endless supply of bread for all. The long-awaited kingdom of God was so close that they could almost taste the wine and hear the music. But alas, Jesus was about to crush their dreams. There would be no military campaign. There would be no popular uprising. There would be no enthronement. There would be no political deliverance for the nation of Israel. In fact, not even five days later, they would see their hopes and their dreams crushed as they witnessed their would-be king hoisted up on a Roman cross, gasping for air, beaten to a bloody pulp, naked and humiliated, and exposed to everyone as an utter and complete failure. To say that they were devastated would be an understatement. As Friday evening came, and they were sitting around, they must have wondered to themselves over and over again, like, how did they make it all? How did they miss this whole thing? Had they been wrong to have these expectations and these hopes? I mean, hadn't Jesus proclaimed that the kingdom of God was at hand? And wasn't it Jesus himself who had built up all these hopes and all these expectations through his teaching and through his preaching and through his signs and his wonders and his miracles, through his symbolic actions? I mean, it was Jesus himself, for example, who had taken the title of Son of Man which is a title from Daniel chapter 7, which was a whole picture of this divinely appointed king being, bringing about the, the kingdom of God and ruling over the nations. Jesus had taken that title. Jesus had communicated as clearly as was humanly possible that he was, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. And so we can hardly fault the disciples for being confused and disillusioned that Friday night. It was unmistakably clear that Jesus intended to be understood as a king. But even though Jesus had clearly communicated that he was to be the crowned king, what he meant by that on the one hand and what the disciples understood by that on the other were two different things. Without realizing it, the disciples had supplied many of their own ideas as to what his kingship would look like. This is, by the way, what psychologists refer to as projection. Uh, projection can take many different forms. But one of the most common forms of projection happens when we consciously or unconsciously place our own various hopes and desires onto another person, uh, often an authority figure. Think of a video projector sort of casting an image onto a wall. Uh, this, the, the, there might be some sort of existing pattern on the wall already, but the image the projector uh, from the projector acts as a kind of overlay over whatever is there on the wall, uh, obscuring it. And this is precisely what the disciples had done with Jesus. They had projected onto him what they thought he was going to be. You may remember that Jesus had explicitly told them on at least three different occasions 
that he was going to Jerusalem and that he was going to be handed over to the authorities, that he would be tortured and killed. But at the time when Jesus said this, the disciples could not map these ideas onto the notion they hold so closely about Jesus being the king and the liberator of, of Israel. And so they ignored them. Now, what's interesting about all this is that the disciples had part of the picture right. They really understood part of it correct here. They, they rightly understood that the outcome of Jesus' life, the outcome of his ministry, was that he would be crowned king, that he would be the deliverer of God's people. But what they failed to accept was that there was a particular pathway that Jesus had to follow in order to arrive at the fullness of his identity. Palm Sunday is perhaps, if you think of the biblical narrative, the most vivid embodiment of a particular vital spiritual truth. And that truth is this. The outcome is not the only thing that we must keep in mind. The outcome is not the only thing. The means by which we arrive at the outcome is vitally important. In other words, it's possible that the right outcome, but sought in the wrong way, brought about in the wrong manner, ceases, in fact, to be the right outcome. Maybe a good example of this is about 60 years ago, Martin Luther King Jr. understood and expressed this idea in powerful ways. It actually undergirded his entire philosophy of what he was doing. So, for example, he, he says stuff about this all the time in his writings and in his, in his preaching. Here's a quote, though, that captures an articulation of, of this truth from him. He says this, In the final analysis, means and ends must cohere because the end is preexistent in the means. And ultimately, destructive means cannot bring about constructive ends. Let me say that again. In the final analysis, means and ends must cohere because the end is preexistent in the means. And ultimately, destructive means cannot bring about constructive ends. The disciples at this point in the story did not understand this truth. As far as they were concerned, Jesus was destined to be the king. That was his, the divinely stated outcome of his life. So why not just get right to it? They didn't understand that the pathway of Jesus' true coronation necessarily involved a road of deep humility and a cross. Now, if Jesus had swooped into Jerusalem on Palm Sunday intending to seize power by force, and if he had raised up a popular movement, and let's say he had successfully overthrown the Romans and he had established himself as the king, just as the, as the disciples had hoped for, I can assure you that things would have turned out very differently thereafter. In fact, I doubt that we'd even be talking about Jesus at this point. He would be just yet another example of a popular leader who led a small-scale revolution of which history is full of these types of stories. And in fact, this, actually this very thing happened 40 years later. In G, after Jesus' time, a small-scale re revolt tried to throw off the Romans, and then it failed. And then another one happened 65 years after that. Um, the fact that you probably don't know the names of those people is evidence that they, they didn't really matter. Violent uprisings are ubiquitous across the world and throughout time. There's nothing special about them. But crucified and resurrected and ascended bodily to the Father's right hand to rule over all things in heaven on earth, well, there's only one story like that. 
When we look at the story from this standpoint, it seems as though Jesus had to crush the disciples' dreams in order to offer them something far greater than they could have ever imagined. It almost seems as though Jesus had to take them through the very heart of their worst nightmare, that he had to strip them of their illusory hopes, that he had to lead them through the darkest pit of hell, that he had to allow their dreams to fall into the earth and die in order to make a reality possible that was inconceivably better than their highest hopes and their deepest dreams. And this is what I want to suggest to you this morning. It is not unique to them. It is the same journey on which he invites each of us to join him. It is the essential path of the Christian faith. It is the way of the cross. If Holy Week is about anything, it's about this journey from our projected hopes and dreams to God's inconceivably better reality. And the journey, if it is to be completed, always involves a cross. We must allow Jesus to crush our dreams, not because our dreams are bad, not because they are necessarily wrong. Like the disciples, we must allow good things, good desires, righteous hopes and expectations. We must allow all of these to fall apart in order for much better things to take their place. We must allow the desires to which we feel most attached and to be disappointed. We must allow the outcomes that we feel most anxious to be secured to be surrendered. And maybe this sounds harsh. And likely you didn't come this morning like wanting to hear about Jesus crushing your dreams. <laughs> but perhaps what we most need is in fact to come face to face with Jesus, the dream crusher. And the good news is, if we can hold our hands open in this posture of trust, then we can face the crushing disappointment of the cross, confident in the power of the resurrection. Now, I don't know about you, but I have a very difficult time embracing what I'm talking about today. Yesterday, I was driving down here to the city with my wife, Elizabeth, and I was waxing eloquent about some dream I had for the future, and it was a dream that did not resonate with Elizabeth. And she knew what I was preaching about. And she said, no, Jesus, the dream crusher. <laughs> Very subtle. So often preachers preach about what they struggle with. And so I'm preaching to myself today. I have a very difficult time letting go of dreams. I have a very difficult time not keeping myself wrapped up in my imagined future. I hate failure, I hate disappointment, I love vision, and I will resist disappointment and failure with all of my soul. I will do everything in my power to preserve my dreams, white knuckle holding on to them. One of the more vivid examples of this for me happened when I moved to San Francisco in 2008 uh, in order to plant a church. Um, I had some very particular ideas about what the future was going to look like. I thought they were very godly ideals. And so I threw myself 
blood, sweat, and tears into developing and planting this church. And uh, things did get some traction. About five years later, 2013, it was just kind of beginning to, to, to become a thing. And the whole thing uh, began to implode. Yeah, I won't bore you with the details about it, but I will tell you that it was excruciating to watch it fall apart. Uh, there was nothing that I could do to stop it. That's what I felt. And there were times, this sounds dramatic, but there were times where I literally wanted to crawl into a hole and die. I was so ashamed. I had received people's money to plant a church. I had had their trust to lead it well. And it was falling apart. And I was so disillusioned. I felt incredibly alone. And I felt so afraid. And it was about a year of watching my dream be crushed piece by piece until there was essentially nothing left. The whole situation forced me to come face to face with uh, my own idealism, but my own weaknesses, my own immaturity, my own brokenness, and my own pride. Turns out there was a lot of idolatry in my dream. The dream of seeing a vibrant, Christ-centered, biblically faithful, thriving church in San Francisco, of course, was not a bad dream. But it seems that the Lord knew that my particular imagination about how it had to be brought about had to be crushed. The problem with our dreams is often not that they are inherently wrong or evil. It's that they are so interwoven with hidden idols. We can't easily tell the difference or differentiate between what is good and right and faith-filled on the one hand and what is driven by hubris or selfishness or pride on the other. And this is, let me just say this, this is particularly true this is particularly true when we're dealing with a dream that we believe expresses a righteous outcome. Something we believe is the will of God. Something that is good and beautiful. My wife Elizabeth and I have spent the last four years uh, dreaming about establishing this uh, monastic-inspired uh, retreat center that we, we were talking about at the very beginning. It's a few hours from here, uh, which is what we're doing right now. Uh, and never have we, ever, have we ever believed so deeply that a dream is from the Lord. But, you see, that is exactly what makes it exponentially dangerous. These are the dreams we cling to even tighter. So, for example, we initially uh, thought we had found the, the right location for the, the project. We had found a piece of land that we thought was the right piece. And we were so enthralled with this location. We were drooling over it. We felt like we had fallen in love. Like, you know, like we were just Google-eyed over the whole thing, right? Uh, and then it didn't work out. It came right down to the point where we thought we were moving forward and, we, and the whole thing fell apart. And this happened twice to us, actually, in the last few years. And both times, it was massively disillusioning. It felt like the whole world like, like tweaked around. And we just thought like someone had pulled the rug out from under us. Like the future was gone. It felt like a significant part of our dream had been crushed. But as is often the case, what has happened is that God was allowing one dream to be crushed while he was preparing something much better. Now, I don't mean to imply that every disappointment 
and that every dream that is crushed leads to a better circumstances or better dreams or happier endings. Uh, That is definitely not the truth. Losing a child, watching a marriage fall apart, going through the brutal experience of watching someone you love slowly die at the hand of cancer, um, none of these have happy endings. They mark us and they, they feel like they're crushing us because they are. We recently had some very good friends lose three pregnancies in a row. That's crushing. Incredibly painful. So do not hear me as saying that the loss of a dream always comes with a bigger, better dream. What I am saying is that in the loss of a dream, there is always the possibility of God meeting us in new ways that were previously unimaginable. The loss of a dream is often the beginning of an authentic reckoning with what God has in mind. It's really interesting interesting to me how much of our life is spent trying to resist uh, feelings of, you might say, disillusionment. Think about that word, disillusionment. We usually think of that as a bad thing. But if we take that word literally, what we are saying is that we prefer to remain under the power of an illusion rather than experience the crushing loss of a dream. Disillusionment ought to be something that we welcome because it is the removal of an illusion. And that is often what our dreams are. They are merely illusions. They are nothing, actually. They are not reality. And nowhere is this more dangerous, resisting it is more dangerous than in the realm of faith. Whether we consciously intend to do so or not, we are often unwittingly projecting our hopes and our dreams and our own preferred outcomes onto Jesus, like the disciples. Like the disciples in the original Palm Sunday, we have a hard time separating what we really want from what Jesus has actually promised. And so we get out our palm fronds and we wave them around enthusiastically. We throw our cloaks on the path before the path that we think we want Jesus to walk down. And we cry out, Hosanna, save us, save our dreams. I mean, much of our prayer life, let's be honest, much of our prayer life, if you think about it, is us pleading with Jesus to rescue our dreams. But like the Palm Sunday of old, sometimes Jesus has to allow our dreams to be crushed in order to fulfill the deepest desire of our hearts. And what is the deepest desire of the human heart? It's not actually, I would argue, for some particular project to work out. It's not actually securing some outcome. It's not looking for some particular event to transpire. It's not some relationship that we want to happen or be fixed. If we listen to the deepest longings of of our hearts, and if we trace them back to their deepest roots inside of our soul, our desires all ultimately point to an aching longing for union with God, the restoration of heaven and earth. As St. Augustine famously prayed, our souls are restless until they rest in you, O God. We say that with me? Our souls are restless until they rest in you, O God. 
Behind every ambition, every hope, every hunger, every dream is ultimately a ravenous and insatiable desire for God. We may not see it clearly, but that's what's there. But the truth is that most of us spend the majority of our lives paying attention to the squawking, demanding voices of our surface desires. We spend our lives building dreams, imagining outcomes, and then trying to secure their outcomes. And so, one of the greatest gifts that God can give us is the gift of a Palm Sunday disappointment. It's the gift of of disillusionment with our own dreams. It's the gift that comes to a crescendo in the excruciating sorrow of Good Friday, but on the third day culminates in the joy of Easter Sunday. And the entire, faith, the entire shape of our Christian faith is this crucifixion, resurrection journey that we celebrate in a unique way this week, but we really celebrate every Sunday. This is not just an ancient story about Jesus and the surprising journey that he took. No, the more mature in faith we become, the more it becomes our story. We are ever increasingly incorporated into his story. His life becomes our life. His death becomes our death. His resurrection becomes our resurrection. This is essentially what St. Paul is trying to say when he says in Galatians, I have been crucified with Christ. I no longer live, but Christ lives in me. The life I now live in the body, he says, I live by faith in the Son of God. You see, he is so mature that his journey, his life has merged with the story of Christ. The journey of having our dreams crushed is the journey of learning to trust the wisdom, the timing, the means, as well as the ends of God. It's the journey of learning to live with open hands, to receive the much better gifts that he has for us than the ones that we're tempted to grasp on our own. None of this is easy. It's only by the power of the Holy Spirit that we can walk this path. And maybe one of the most vivid reminders of this is when you come to receive communion each each week, you come forward with empty hands. You have nothing to offer. You're receiving You're letting go of your dreams and you're receiving the dream of God for you, which is union with him. So I want to talk for just a couple moments here at the end uh, and ask you to think personally about what I've been talking about. What are the dreams that you are most fervently clinging onto in this season of your life? What, What project, what particular outcome, what relationship do you feel most attached to right now? And are you willing to open your hands to God and entrust it to him? Maybe some of you are already in the process of uh, experiencing an excruciating uh, feeling of a dream that you've clung to being crushed. And the word excruciating is a great word for that. It's the right word. It literally means in Latin, uh, out of or from the cross, excruciating, from the cross. The process of being disillusioned can feel like a crucifixion. And here's what I want you to hear today. I don't know the particulars of your situation. I don't know what dream is falling apart for you, what pain you're experiencing, but I can assure you of this. 
God loves you enough for him to give you this gift, the gift of disillusionment. I know it doesn't feel like a gift, but if you open your hands, it can become a gift. I said this in the first service, and I'll say it again. I I highly recommend that if you feel like this dream is falling apart, it is being crushed for you, or you feel that the, the tentacles of your heart wrapped around a particular outcome, I strongly recommend that you utilize the prayer team today during the, the second set of worship here, that you take some time and open your heart to someone, confess what you're struggling with, uh, mourn with someone about what's being lost, and entrust it to Jesus. And sometimes uh, a prayer ministry is so valuable because someone can put into words what you cannot Or someone can just hold that presence with you, that moment with you, where you need to to actually surrender something to the Lord. So I strongly encourage you um, to use the prayer ministry today. You know, the cross did not feel like a gift to the disciples when when they watched Jesus put up on it that horrendous Friday that we call Good Friday 2,000 years ago. It felt like the, the most brutal destruction of their deepest hopes and dreams. But in light of the resurrection, this is the amazing thing, in light of the resurrection, the cross took on an entirely different meaning for them and for our world. Previous to this, the sign of a cross was a sign of humiliation, defeat, destruction, uh, embarrassment, failure. The sign of the cross, what does it mean now? It means hope. It means life. You see, like, you know, even in this Russian Ukraine, it's the red cross that's growing in, right? It's the cross, sign of the cross. It's a sign of hope. Imagine, that's what God does. He takes the cross and he redeems it. And so I ask you again, what dreams are you holding on to so tightly right now that might be inhibiting your ability to enter into the fullness of God's dream for you? On this day, Palm Sunday, we encounter Jesus, the dream crusher, who invites us to open our hands and to release control, who invites us onto this harrowing journey that leads us through the events of this coming week, through conflict, through betrayal, through abandonment and injustice and abuse of power and torture and shame and humiliation and even death itself. And all of this in order that he might bring us to the insurpassable glory and wonder and beauty and joy of next Sunday. This place ought to be rocking next Sunday with joy. You ought to just be exploding. Amen. Yeah, let's go. So we got to wait for it though. It's good. Okay. Because, because... There is no Easter without Holy Week. The pathway always runs through Good Friday. Looking backwards from our vantage point, we can see that Jesus disappointing his disciples in the aftermath of Palm Sunday was in fact the greatest act of love. And I'm so glad, I'm so glad that the climax of the story that we're celebrating here on Palm Sunday is not some tale about a violent overthrow of the Romans. And that it is instead about something much greater. The defeat, the very defeat of fear and violence and death itself. And that it is the establishment of new creation where evil will be no more. And we will, we will dwell in endless joy and love with our creator and our redeemer forever and ever. Thank God that he crushes our small dreams. And in their place he gives us himself. May Jesus graciously, but completely crush our small and insufficient dreams 
in order that we might enter into the fullness and richness of his dream for us, which is life with him eternally, in which he has opened up to us through his death and his resurrection. In the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. Can I pray for us? Heavenly Father, we give you great thanks that you are unspeakably good and that we can trust you. That your way, and not just the end, but the way, your way of accomplishing things is good and pure and right. Lord, I ask you to be with those who are here today who are feeling like um, something about the way they've imagined the future is just completely imploding. It's falling apart. It's not going how they wanted it to. Uh, Lord, I pray for anyone in that place today that they might be able to entrust their broken heart and their lost dreams to you and trust that it is actually you working out your purposes in their life. And Lord, for those who are clinging tightly and feeling like maybe actually their imagined future could be accomplished through their own strength, Lord, I pray that you would graciously, gently, kindly, but firmly crush those false dreams and instead give us yourself, the true and good and beautiful self. Lord, I pray that you would enter us into a new place of receiving the greatest gift of union with you. We want nothing but union with you. That's what we desire. So meet us, we pray, in the name of Christ. Amen.